Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. And good morning, good morning. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. I'm Jenna Ellis, and joining me soon will be Ken Paxton, the Attorney General for Texas, one of my favorite people, uh, because he files lawsuits like the one we are going to talk about this morning. It is an amicus brief on the Texas versus Facebook lawsuit, a fundamental interest in protecting the free exchange of ideas and information. So Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed that amicus brief in Texas versus meta lawsuit that has challenged Facebook's ability to censor Texans. We need this all across the country. The lawsuit has not only caused meta to stop censoring the Texas national movement, but it has also uh, shaken big tech lawyers and likely will hold social media giants to Texas House Bill 20, which forbids social media giants from censoring Texans. So his amicus brief was deeply critical of Meta's request, is complementary of Texas uh, Texas lawsuit, and seeks to uphold the Texas HB 20. So Ken Paxton said this, uh, Texas passed HB 20 after numerous examples came to light where Facebook and other large social media platforms were shown to discriminate against users based on their users' viewpoints. Texas determined that this behavior rose to the level that it implicated the state's fundamental interest in protecting the free exchange of ideas and information within its borders. Facebook likely had no basis to remove this suit to federal court. There is definitively no federal question jurisdiction because the plaintiff suit arises under HB 20, a state law cause of action. So uh, we are trying to get Ken Paxton on the phone uh, this morning, and he will join us hopefully momentarily. But um, this is a great, uh, and I'm told that he is ready. So joining me now is Attorney General Ken Paxton, one of my dear friends. Uh, So, sir, thank you so much. And tell me more about uh, why this challenge right now. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, this was actually a case where the Texas National Movement, who I know very little about, uh, was arguing that their their followers and they were being uh, banned from posting certain comments, which we believe is a violation of our new law, HB House Bill 20, which was designed to protect uh, against censorship of any views, conservative or liberal. And in this case, we're arguing, because we're still in litigation over this, we're at the U.S. Supreme Court asking them, well, actually, we wanted the Fifth Circuit. The other side is asking, the, the, uh, the, the social media companies are asking that, that obviously, that HB 20 not be enforced. Uh, so we're at the Supreme Court level on that. So we can't enforce it as a state right now, but individuals can, can enforce that law. And we are arguing in this case, hey, look, we can't enforce until we get done with our litigation. However, the courts have said that individuals can enforce that. And so we're supporting this group's ability to say, we, we, we want our free speech. 
Yeah, and and that makes so much sense. I think so many conservatives are very frustrated by the one-sided enforcement of these big tech platforms that censor only conservative viewpoints and need to be held accountable. And so where do you expect uh, this to go, assuming that HB 20 can be enforced? How will that really change how users in the state of Texas experience uh, censorship or not from big tech? Well, you know, one of the arguments has been these big companies, they're, they're companies, and they, they're not subject to uh, First Amendment arguments. However, because we have a couple of things going on, one is we have the government interfering with that and telling, you know, working with Facebook and other companies to, to try to, to stop certain viewpoints, because we know the FBI did that, uh, as it related to Hunter Biden, as it's related to COVID issues, and, and it's related to other issues. And so we know that the government is doing doing things that are clearly violating the First Amendment, but we also know that these are oftentimes monopolies where if you don't have access to speaking, uh, what your personal viewpoints are on whatever, religious views, political views on, on anything, then we are we would be losing our, our, our ability to exercise our First Amendment rights. It's pretty important because obviously the founders listed it as the First Amendment, thinking it fundamental to a free society. Absolutely. And, and so does that change the analysis at all if uh, Meta could come back and say, well, you know, now that Elon Musk owns Twitter and there is an outlet uh, and there are other things like Truth Social and other platforms that are built for conservatives, well, now, you know, this isn't uh, a a free speech issue or this isn't something that um, should change because there is a different alternative for people to go and express their viewpoint if Meta doesn't allow that particular viewpoint on their platform. Well, part of the problem is that even though there, there may be some competition, they still control you know, a significant part of the marketplace. So if you want, say, as a political candidate to get to the marketplace, you can't do that if you're being discriminated by certain companies like Google or Meta or whatever. You, you won't get your message out the same way that your competition is, and that, that, that creates political dynamics where one side can get their message out and the other can't. And that, I think, creates a real problem for democracy. This is all about – I mean, I don't know exactly why these companies are afraid of hearing conservative thoughts, but they are. They don't want that message out. They're afraid that people will believe it. That's the only reason you actually you know, discriminate because you actually think that people might, might think that those views are right. And they're afraid of people thinking of those views as right, and that's what, that's what this is all about. And remember, as I said, the government's been significantly involved in, in working with Facebook and other companies to tell them – hey, discriminate against these people. We can't do it from the government. You can because you're a private company. Well, that clearly creates problems uh, with, with, with our Constitution. And so that's why, we're in, that's why we, we have states passing laws trying to protect individual rights and, and First Amendment rights. Yeah. And, and it makes so much sense. And so as you're looking from the standpoint of states' rights and enforcing uh, the law and the Constitution in Texas, um, as, and, and you're looking at the new congressional oversight and uh, and what they're trying to figure out with some of these new uh, committees and, and investigations into some of that collusion between big tech and the government, where big tech is basically acting as an agent of the government. Are you hopeful or do you expect any of the information that's gathered by Congress Congress to help uh, Texas or any of these states in any way with these types of lawsuits with that kind of accountability? And the answer is yes. I think the more information we know about what they've actually done, I mean, as we found out information, 
you know, maybe acted almost accidentally or just through some type of litigation process, we find out more and more about how these big tech companies have colluded with the Biden administration to limit free speech. And uh, there's not just one example. I know we, we've not only just have law enforcement, we remember we've, we've had um, we've had threats from the Justice Department about, you know, parents speaking out. So it's gone even beyond just social media. Comes. This administration fears um, different viewpoints and they want to shut people up uh, because they're afraid that the tr- I think they're afraid that the, the truth hurts their cause. Yeah. And it's amazing because our founders thought that more speech and uh, more free exchange of ideas would help us gather the truth and ultimately determine for ourselves what we believe. But big tech and unfortunately, the government and certainly the federal government doesn't like us to have that type of free exchange of ideas because they want us to believe the propaganda and they want us to believe the narrative. So I'm talking with uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who I'm very privileged to call a friend. And uh, Ken, in the last just few minutes that I have with you as well, um, I wanted to also ask you about election integrity. You have been at the forefront of fighting that battle uh, in Texas. And where do things, uh, where are things in Texas? And what are you hopeful for in terms of the litigation there ahead of the next election? So we were able to prevent what happened in Georgia and Pennsylvania. We, we had 12 lawsuits in very liberal counties with liberal judges. And instead of signing off on it or just allowing it to happen or just letting the mail-in ballots go out, we fought 12 different lawsuits in one. And as a result, we didn't have counting for three, four, or five days because we didn't have all these mail-in ballots that no one could verify as you know, legitimate. And that's the problem with all these other states. They had mail-in ballots that they could not, they could not verify as legitimate. And then it made it easy just to, just to keep counting ballots. However, we are probably in our worst position that we've been because our Court of Criminal Appeals Republican voted 8-1 to strike down a 1951 statute that directed the Attorney General pursuant to law passed by the legislature in 1951. And by the way, we've done hundreds if not thousands of uh, voter fraud cases. They said it was unconstitutional, a violation of separation of powers, for the attorney general to be in court. So under their ruling, I would never be allowed to go in court. And if they are right, separation of powers prevents an attorney general from being in court. Every attorney general in the country would be violating the U.S. Constitution. And so we're in a fight to try to repass that legislation. And then we need in our state, we have to change the court of criminal appeals. Because even though they're Republican, these are not, no one knows who these judges are. They're, they're, they deal with only criminal matters. They're our top court. And their ruling is final, and I'm not convinced these are Republican judges, even though they call themselves that. Yeah, that that makes absolutely no sense to say that an attorney general is violating the separation of powers when they're in court and pursuing these types of cases. I mean, w- unpack that just a little bit to, to explain. I mean, w- were they saying that this was an encroachment on the legislative purview because the legislature is the one that, that passes these types of election laws? And so fighting the administration of the election somehow violated the separation of powers? No, what they're saying is that... Um, the legislature passed it, directed the attorney general pursuant to their constitutional role and pursuant to the attorney general's constitutional role, because one of my four roles under the Constitution is to is to do such things as are required by law. One of the things required by law was the legislature passed a law that said I should prosecute voter fraud. And, and long before I got there, voter fraud, and there's plenty of precedent. What the court said was, hey, wait a minute, you're going into court. That's a judicial function. You're almost you're acting like a judge, which is not accurate. <laughs> And they're saying, I can't, I'm not allowed in court. In other words, the 38,000 civil cases that I have, if they were right, now they can't rule on civil cases, but if their theory is right, 
No, I wouldn't be allowed to go in court for any reason to represent the state. The state would not be allowed to have anybody function as an attorney for the state unless they hired outside counsel. Um, it's ludicrous because obviously from the beginning of this country, we've had attorney generals in I think every state, and obviously if the U.S. U.S. government has an attorney general, and if their theory is right, then the, the founders start out unconstitutional uh, from from the beginning. That that is just absolutely insane. I'm talking with uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, and would that then that same logic go down to like local district attorneys and and others that no, do go into court no, every day, or no. is it just specific to the attorney general? No, these, these, this court wants the district attorney, so they have authority to prosecute all crimes. And the only one that I was allowed to, to prosecute under the law, so I don't have criminal jurisdiction other than a referral from the district attorney. But the, the court knows that the DAs in some of these liberal counties are not going to prosecute voter fraud. And so if, if people know, hey, I can commit as much voter fraud as I want, and my local DA from Travis County, who was put in there by George Soros, or my local DA from uh, Bear County, which is San Antonio, uh, who was put in there by George Soros, or my local DA from Houston uh, was put in there by George Soros, I'm not going to have to work. I can do whatever I want. And the court knows that, too. And so they wanted to get the attorney general to back up out of the way. Now, these local DAs could prosecute it. But you will see they will not prosecute it. And then fundamentally, then the legislature's laws are nullified. Right. And so, I mean, this this sounds like it's the same thing as forum selecting in the judicial branch. They're basically prosecution selecting. And so because they know that they have these types of prosecutors that will, in their discretion, say, well, we're going to decline to do this. They're just trying to select who enforces the law instead of actually looking at what the law says and allowing the attorney general to do uh, his or her job. So, I mean, that's that's incredibly absurd. And so um, so that you said is was a final decision. Is that being appealed at all? Or are you just looking at a legislative change? The genius of this strategy, and I, I'm convinced that guys like George Soros were behind it, because most people don't know who the Court of Criminal Appeals they don't know who the members are, even though they're Republican. It was an 8-1 vote. And so they were able to, to just do this, and, and no one pays attention to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And wow. I, there's nowhere to appeal it. This is our, we have two Supreme Courts in Texas, one of, I think, two states. We have the Texas Supreme Court that deals with final issues on, on matters related to civil issues, and we have the Court of Criminal Appeals. That's why I think it was so smart for whoever was behind the strategy to get the right people on that court no one pays attention to it. Most Republicans, I can't even get, if I, if I go to an audience, 99% yeah. of my lawyers don't know who's on the That's, court, right? That, so, that so, is so, incredible. So. And this is why I'm so grateful for uh, you, Ken Paxton, and others who are fighting the good fight, and you are seeing this type of strategy so that you can combat that with better strategy. So uh, Texas AG Ken Paxton, thank you so much for joining me today. We will be right back with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning, right here on American Family Radio Network. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better 
Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray. A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Marty Walsh, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. His office administers federal laws governing occupational safety and health, wage and hour standards, unemployment benefits, reemployment services, and economic statistics. Proverbs 13.4 reminds us of the importance of hard work. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Marty Walsh in his work at the Department of Labor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Praise, a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. The Associated Press wrote a story the other day about how Uber and Lyft drivers are using their personal vehicles to promote Christianity. In many cases, the drivers play Christian music or listen to sermons. They see their work as a sort of mobile Christian ministry, sharing the good news with their passengers. It was only a matter of time for the Freedom From Religion Foundation to hit a speed bump. They claim the drivers are discriminating against atheists, and they want Uber and Lyft to implement policies that would forbid drivers from sharing their faith. They fired off letters to both companies accusing drivers of proselytizing, missionized against their will, is how the angry atheist described it. You know, it seems to me with all the road rage on America's highways these days, even the atheist crowd would welcome a calming and inspirational presence on our roadway. There's a reason why Carrie Underwood asked Jesus to take the wheel and not an atheist. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, for every parent and grandparent who is concerned about kids' education and school choice, the Yes Every Kid Foundation has launched a new legal policy center, and they very, very wisely decided to appoint Mike Donnelly as their vice president. For those of you who don't know Mike Donnelly, you absolutely should get to know that name because he has been at the forefront of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association's global advocacy for homeschooling and school choice for the last decade or more. I have been privileged uh, to know Mike personally for probably close to a decade now, and uh, he has taught me so much about the global advocacy of um, how we put the U.S. Constitution in context, Article 7, a lot of you know other things that we talk about uh, between attorneys. He is a brilliant mind and so grateful to have him join uh, me this morning to talk more about school choice and this new legal policy center initiative. So, Mike, 
Mike Donnelly, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jenna. It's so great to be with you and to get introduced to your audience. And it's a good thing you had me silenced while you were telling my bio because I would have had to interrupt you. <laughs> but thank well, you so much for those kind words. It's been it's been a privilege for me to have known you and uh, been a part of your uh, amazing life story for the last decade or so. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, it's good friends like you uh, that really inspire me to continue on advocating for the Constitution and for parental rights and uh, for all of these rights that we cherish and we understand are God-given. And so, you know, as a, as a sincere Christian, uh, you are a homeschool father of uh, seven kids yourself with you and your wife, Patty. So this is a personal mission for you as well. So um, so let's talk about the Yes, Every Kid Foundation and what you anticipate uh, doing in terms of school choice, or as um, I think they describe it in this press release, as educational entrepreneurs. Um, I love that term. And so as you're going into this new initiative, what's your goal and focus? Well, Jenna, you know, you were homeschooled. I'm a homeschool parent. And, you know, the essence of homeschooling is providing an individualized educational experience and opportunity for every single child. You know, God created each one of us differently. We are unique. We are all called with a unique purpose in our lives. And that's the way education should be for every single child in this country, in the world, really. Uh, And that's what Yes, Every Kid Foundation is about. We are about uh, promoting that idea, about advocating for that idea, uh, about really inspiring a national conversation, which is happening. I mean, look, homeschooling, was the beginning of this revolution that we are seeing in our country in the education area. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, really, you had parents saying, you know what, this institutionalized, standardized, one-size-fits-all approach to education, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work, and we need to do something different. And so homeschool parents pull their kids out of the school in thousands and now millions. And so for, for three to five million, maybe more children who are home educated, uh, they're getting that kind of individualized educational experience is the best their parents can, can give them in, in their families. And we need more of that. Uh, we need more of that. And so what I'm going to be doing uh, with YES is helping facilitate that. You know, there's a lot of institutionalized education and there's some new education entrepreneurs out there. You know, during the pandemic, parents didn't sort of like sit on their hands and say, oh, well, what are we going to do with the schools, the schools? What, what are you going to do for me? There were many, many parents who said, you know what? This isn't working. We're going to figure something out. And they didn't quite do homeschooling like you were homeschooled or I homeschooled my kids. They, they gather together in these things that, that they call micro schools, learning pods, education cooperatives. They, they group together in different ways to provide for the education of their kids. And that's what we need to see more of. And so I'm excited about joining uh, this initiative to facilitate that kind of. Yeah, which which is such a great uh, opportunity for parents, especially the parents who may feel like they either don't have the time or resources or uh, the education level or however they feel like they may not be as uh, fit to 
to necessarily homeschool just on their own. They can then collaborate with others and have a lot of other uh, choices and opportunities besides co-parenting with the government, which is is basically uh, what institutionalized uh, government-funded education is. And of course, the left would uh, combat that and say, well, parents aren't fit, and we need to presume that you have to have some sort of uh, fundamental level of education or um, some kind of qualifications in order to exercise your God-given parental rights to choose the education for and direct the education of your child, which of course you and I would say absolutely not. That is unconstitutional. And you have been on the forefront uh, fighting this fight. And so um, for, for the parents who are listening, who you know may be considering some of these options, but they're not really sure how that fits into the wider context of parental rights, um, describe for them why this is fundamentally a right that the Constitution does preserve and protect in terms of parental rights. Well, you know, Jenna, I mean, we've, we've talked about the Constitution so much over the years, and I'm excited to continue doing that and to talk with your new audience about this. You know, the Supreme Court has recognized that parents have a fundamental right to direct the education and upbringing of their children. And, you know, yes is strongly in favor of this idea that families know what's best for their children's education. And we need to unlock the potential of every child by investing in that, by creating policies that recognize that, and really getting government out of the way. Because, you know, our country was founded on this idea that we can trust our fellow citizens, that when individuals make their own decisions in their best interest, that we can flourish as a, as a nation. And we've, we've kind of lost our way. And, and, you know, you trace that back to the Wilsonian era of elitism and experts running things. And, you know, we're reaping the benefits of that. <laughs> benefits. We're, re- we're reaping the, the problems that that idea has sown over the last decades of the administrative state and top-down centralized solutions. We need to move away from that. And we're seeing that happening. And I think that's what home, the homeschooling movement was, was a reaction to that. And I think what we're going to see is more of that. And, uh, you know, as, as a people, we've got to come together and we need to take steps. And that's what YES is doing. And I see that happening all over the country. Many states are advancing these ideas, both in the, to make the public schools better, more individualized if that's possible. We can't just abandon those institutions. We've got to try to ad- advocate for policies that are good for all children. But creating this new space where people can be educational entrepreneurs, and really create these small learning environments where parents can be really involved because we know when parents are involved in the education of the children, good things happen. And these small learning environments like micro schools and learning pods help that happen. They flour- where children can really flourish. Yeah, and, and this is such a, a great opportunity. I'm talking with my good friend Mike Donnelly, who is now uh, the vice president of the new Legal Policy Center for Yes Every Kid Foundation. You can find them at yeseverykidfoundation.org, and he has been on the forefront of advocating for school choice and uh, litigating across the globe for uh, the best interests of children, which of course uh, come from the parents and from parents uh, knowing their child individually the best and choosing the best form of education for them. And, you know, Mike, as you were talking, I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, for the last, um, you know, I don't know whether it's 60 years plus, I mean, there, there has been this sort of um, just understanding that we should 
we collectively as a society, we just send our kids to school. We put them on the bus and, you know, that's just what everybody does. And that type of mindset needs to be broken so that parents realize that they do have options rather than just going along with the status quo and what the government and society and culture tells them to do with their children and and having mm-hmm. these types of options. And so what do you think are, are the strongest barriers that you've encountered in talking to parents about yep. uh, school choice and why maybe they're not mm-hmm. taking those choices and, and running with them? Well, Jenna, such a great question. You know, really, it's about a paradigm shift. You know, a paradigm is this mental model that we have about how reality is. And the, I think the biggest barrier that I've encountered with people, whether it's trying to think about envisioning themselves homeschooling or doing something other than sending their kids to the school. You talk about being on a bus. When I was a kid growing up in the middle of Grafton, New Hampshire, which is in the middle of nowhere, uh, I spent three hours on a bus both ways to school. I did a lot of reading. You know, I read the dictionary when I was a kid, and people made fun of me for it, but uh, I think it helped me. But uh, I'm still going to make fun of you anyway. for that, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm pretty good at uh, Bananagrams and Scrabble. Don't, yeah, don't take me on, you'll lose. No, just kidding. Uh, but, you know, the idea is a paradigm shift. We've got to change our mental model. And can I tell you something? I think the American people understand this because I wanted to point out something, Jen. I want to share with your audience some really interesting new information from Todd Rose at the Populous uh, Think Tank. Todd is a former Harvard Business School professor who started this think tank, and he wrote a book called Collective Illusions. And he is really unveiling some interesting information about what people really think about education. And you know what? 70-plus percent of Americans think we need to do something different in education in our country. That is really amazing because when you listen to the media or you listen to other polls, it seems like everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm satisfied with the kids' education. You know, 70% think we need to do something different. Okay? Um, That's incredible. And the, the top-line findings from this, fi- this, summer of this uh, study can be found at the Populist Foundation. It's called the Purpose of Education Index. Do I have time to share two or three points from it? Absolutely. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, so here's what our fellow Americans are thinking. Number one, college should no longer be the end goal of K-12 education. You know, if you're not happy with what's happening in colleges, neither are your fellow Americans. And they're like, you know, really, should a college degree be the end-all, be-all of education? No. Kids should figure out for themselves what their interests are and follow that. And a credential or diploma at the end of that is is not what people think should be the goal. I think that's exciting. That Um, is. That's interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Practical skills and outcomes should be the goal, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we need our people, our citizens, and parents want this for their kids to actually have a practical skill. Like going to college is fine. You know, if you need to be, if you want, if you're going to be a doctor or if you're going to be a lawyer, you got to go to school because you got to go to law school or medical school or whatever. I mean, it didn't used to be that way. Abe Lincoln didn't go to law school, you know, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) You know, maybe it'll be a while before we get back to that, but one can hope. One can hope. Uh, I mean, if we get the licensing administrative state (laughs) contained to not say that we have to designate you as fit to go, you know, practice your industry. But, uh, you know, that's something for Justice Gorsuch to contemplate down the road. So, yeah. Well, well, you know, if you if we can think it and imagine it, we can achieve it. I mean, look, you know, Elon Musk is trying to put a colony on the Mars on Mars. Right. Okay, whatever. But but so so that was uh, practical skills and outcomes should be the end goal. Number three, individualized education is the future. One size fits all is the past. I mean, if you're not standing up and cheering about that, I don't know what is going to get you excited about, you know, and when it comes to good news and education in our country. I mean, this is what the homeschooling movement is all about. 
And now the rest of our fellow citizens are like saying, yeah, you know what? We need to do that as much as we can in other places, too. I think that's pretty exciting. Absolutely. And I think it's it's very exciting to see that there is a high percentage, and that is far higher than I would have guessed or anticipated, that people who are seeing problems in our institutions and this kind of one-size-fits-all mentality are wanting to do something about it. And so just in the last about you know two, two and a half minutes I have with you, uh, Mike Donnelly, who's now the vice president of the Yes Every Kid Foundation, you can find them at yeseverykidfoundation.org. Um, what are some of these policies that we can change to actually effectuate this goal and harness the enthusiasm of 70%. Well, you know, Jenna, that's what YES is working on. I encourage folks to go to the yeseverykidfoundation.org website to learn more about what we're doing. And uh, I'm excited to be getting started. You know, I've been privileged to serve the global homeschooling community for so many years. And, um, you know, if there are people listening right now, I want to encourage folks, if you're homeschooling, and you've never heard of my previous organization, HSLDA, I want to encourage you as a homeschool parent to go and support HSLDA. And what I'm going to be doing at YES is very similar to what HSLDA was doing for homeschoolers. We need to have mechanisms that defend this new breed of educational entrepreneur from administrative interference. You know, um, when we create policies that respect the dignity of the individual, that respect the idea that we can create bottoms-up solutions, right, and not get in the way of people, that's going to be good. So we got to get rid of some of the regulations. It needs to be easier for people to start micro schools and learning pods. These micro schools and learning pods need to be protected from silly regulations that don't apply to them. You know, like why should fire codes, uh, for example, apply to little tiny learning pods? You know, they don't need sprinkler systems and three exits and you know, fire extinguishes in every corner of the room. Now, these are silly ideas. So we've got to work on creating freedom for these education entrepreneurs to pursue their dreams, which is a better education, a more individualized education for the children that they're looking to serve, for the families that they're looking for serve, to serve. And, you know, as I said, Jenna, we can't abandon the institutional public schools we have. So we've got to create policies that allow children to learn, to gain credit, or learning in other places, you know, whether it's 4-H or Boys and Girls Clubs or Boy Scouts or Trail Life, you know, if kids are doing things that merit credit outside of the building, they should get credit. Um, you know, why should parents be prevented from choosing a school that works best for their kid just because they live in a particular neighborhood? So we've got to, you know, create open enrollment policies and we've got to look for ways for parents to be empowered, for families to be empowered, to choose the best place and the best kind of education for their children. So uh, you if you can't tell, I'm excited about doing this work, Jen, and I hope I'll have the chance to, to talk with you and your audience a little bit more about this in the future. Oh, absolutely. We'll love having you on. Uh, Mike Donnelly, who is now the vice president of the Yes Every Kid Foundation. You can find them at yeseverykidfoundation.org. Thank you so much, for uh, Mike Donnelly, for explaining parental rights and you know this kind of excitement over a hybrid sort of education that it doesn't have to be just uh, fully government enrolled or just purely homeschooling this type of um, hybrid collective and um, you know all of these different choices can really excite parents because then it doesn't have to just be a one-size-fits-all of, of maybe one or two options. So look forward to talking with you more about parental rights and education and school choice in the future. I know that that's very exciting for so many people who have kids. And uh, so we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning and uh, right here on American Family Radio Network.
God has pulled all the threads together and put us in his master tapestry so that we play a part in all that God is doing. Every single one of us is a thread or a part of that great tapestry that God is embroidering. Join Dr. David Jeremiah for his series, God Loves You, He Always Has, He Always Will, next time on Turning Point. 5.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. Central on American Family Radio. I love this country. Well, can I tell you something? I love the Lord more than I love this country, and I love the body of Christ more than I love this country. So it is because I love you, frankly, I have to tell the truth. There are many that are more concerned with the consequences in our nation than we are about the call. The Hamilton Quarter. Weekday afternoons at 5 Central on American Family Radio. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. The city lies four square, its length, width, and height all equal, 1,380 miles for each dimension. The city's wall is 216 feet high, 12 gates around the city, with each gate made of a single pearl. Streets of gold so pure, they're translucent. No need for a sun, God's glory lights the city. No tears, no pain. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. In this new world, on this new day, we rejoice that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Preborn has been preparing for this moment for the past 16 years by positioning their clinics in the top six abortion states where 50% of abortions occur. Sadly, five of these six states will continue to abort babies at an even greater level. And since the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of abortions, babies are even more at risk. Preborn pregnancy clinics are completely dependent on you as they offer life-saving ultrasounds and the life-saving gospel to moms and babies in crisis. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. To learn how you can be a part of rescuing babies' lives and sharing the heart of Jesus, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we've had some great guests this morning talking about some uh, really important topics. And I want to get right to my last guest of the morning, uh, which is an incredibly important topic. Uh, You may have seen all of the... the fires and and the crazy attacks that were going on in Atlanta on Saturday. And a lot of people are wondering really what is going on. You have um, a lot of controversy on the mainstream media with uh, saying, you know, no, this wasn't uh, Antifa or it was. And so uh, joining me now is Andy No, who is a journalist and author of the New York Times bestseller Unmasked. He's an editor at large of the Post Millennial and um, actually captured some really amazing video on the ground. So Andy, um, what's going on in Atlanta? Was Antifa involved or uh, what have you seen? 
Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me on. Uh, to clarify, I didn't capture footage on the ground. What I've been doing is the open source research on how groups on social media have been using Twitter in particular and other blogs to mobilize and organize around this autonomous zone occupation. So what your listeners need to know that for um, that though there was um, quite a shocking scenes of violence in Atlanta on Saturday, um, that violence is actually part of a wider um, uh, it, series of incidents that have been going on in the Atlanta area for a year and a half. Um, in June of 2021, um, militants from the far left, uh, representing a number of far left ideologies that include Antifa, it includes eco extremism, and um, anarchists and communists, have gone to this wooded area southeast of Atlanta to prevent the construction of a future law enforcement training fight. So um, because they've been able to, unable to stop it through the legal process, the city of Atlanta had, had long approved the funding. They then moved in physically and created the space where it's a, a no-cop zone and, and it's where they don't recognize American jurisdiction. And there have been several attempts since May of last year by multiple law enforcement agencies in Georgia to clear out the occupiers, and they keep coming back and they use violence like firebombs, and it escalated um, last week into one of their gunmen at this occupation sh shooting a Georgia state trooper uh, in, an, in an attempt to kill him, and then getting shot dead in the returning crossfire from law enforcement. So that's, that's the quick summary of things that led up to why there was that attack in downtown Atlanta. That attack um, was retribution, in their own words, for their a comrade being martyred. Wow, this is incredible. I'm talking with Andy No, who is a, a journalist and an editor at large for the the Post Millennial, a great uh, news outlet. By the way, if you're if anyone is looking for uh, where to actually get the news instead of just on mainstream media, uh, they report a lot of the news that uh, you don't hear in other outlets. And I think Andy, a, a lot of us, I mean myself included, are are surprised to to hear that this has been going on for a year and a half because I was just. Um, just hearing about the violence in Atlanta for the first time on Saturday because of a lot of uh, the independent journalists who captured some of this footage. And this sounds a lot like the Chaz that happened, uh, you know, a few years ago up in Seattle and, and kind of this um, just autonomous zone. So is the motivation for that similar? And why aren't we hearing about this on the mainstream media as much as we heard about the Chaz? Um, it is similar in ideology to the Chaz of that autonomous zone in Seattle a few years ago. I was on the ground there. Um, this one I is not getting has not received as much media attention, even locally. There's lots of people in Atlanta who have messaged me and said, "I live in Atlanta. I didn't know that there was this occupation going on." Well, it's, <clears throat> it's happening on the city outskirts in a wooded area that is. Um, it's not in the middle of the city like it was in Seattle. And two, the propaganda that's been put out from the um, the press and left-wing activists has been really relentless this entire time. 
they've intentionally tried to deceive the public into thinking that it's um, it's just a, a climate protest. Yeah, when those who have gone there and, and I've looked into their backgrounds because there's been a number of arrests over uh, the raids in the last year. Um, they have really extremist ideologies. And um, they're coming from all over the United States, heeding a call to join this, um, I would call like mini caliphate in a way, where they believe that um, American law enforcement have no legitimacy and no right to exist. And so they're going to carve out this little space in the United States where they can run things their own way as the commune. Um, But a lot of violence has erupted there and also in the area around um, in in November. um, There was a man, a driver, and this was covered in the local press, who drove into the area having no idea what this occupation was. He saw a lot of junk and thought there was free things to take. And his vehicle was firebombed and he was, according to him, nearly set on fire and killed with him in the vehicle. Um, houses near, that are under construction right by the uh, occupation have been burnt to the ground in December. Um, and of course, you know, the, the big thing that I haven't stated yet, uh, but which is the headline is that between the raids in December and January, we have now, um, and including the six arrested over the weekend, 19 individuals who have been charged with domestic terrorism in addition to other serious felonies by um, Georgia prosecutors. Wow. And and I'm talking with Andy No, who is the, the editor-at-large of The Post Millennial and uh, an incredible journalist. And, you know, all of this, Andy, is is so fascinating from the perspective of how we're being fed uh, propaganda. And, you know, this this is just a another example of how the mainstream media curates content for the news and tells us only the things that they think are newsworthy and, of course, shields other information. And so what is going on, though, with law enforcement there? in terms of combating this sort of autonomous zone when you have, um, if it's outside Atlanta, I'm not sure if, you know, the the mayor is involved. Um, Of course, that's Andre Dickens now, not uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who went to the Biden administration. But we have Governor Kemp uh, in Georgia. We also have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's the, of course, member of Congress, that just yesterday uh, said that she is... uh, introducing legislation that would declare Antifa a terrorist organization. Um, so you see some involvement from Republicans, but what has been the response um, from law enforcement there? Well, every time that they carry out a raid, um, militants from all over the U.S. just re- go back and reoccupy. That's been the big issue. It's a very large space, by the way, many, many acres so there's not like one, you know, they can't wall off the area. So people are coming back, and it's not under guard 24-7. And that's been the big issue. And I think probably maybe that has to do with why prosecutors are pursuing more severe charges since December, because, the one, the violence has escalated, and two, things, you know, the misdemeanor charges that happened with some of the arrests at a raid in May last year didn't seem to act as a deterrent, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, I I listened to an interview from the Georgia Attorney General yesterday, and 
he seems to have a very clear understanding of what's happening and has pledged uh, the, the full support of his office in helping prosecutors um, hold accountable the uh, violent extremist suspects in this case. There's another angle to the story, though, that I want to raise, just that um, over and over what we're seeing now is that those um, part of the far left are able to activate essentially cells across the U.S. to carry out retaliatory violence. We saw them do that last year um, in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, you know, coast-to-coast pregnancy resource centers and um, some Christian churches being torched or vandalized, smashed up, destroyed um, by cells across the U.S., now, in response to the gunmen being killed last week, in addition to the violence in Atlanta, there was an attack on a bank in Lansing um, that resulted in six arrests. Um, and, of course, there, uh, another story that's gotten a lot of attention is that at a far-left direct action in Boston, in solidarity with the Atlanta Autonomous Zone, one of the violent arrestee suspects is the adult drowns child of the House Minority Whip. Hmm. Wow. A Democrat. Mm-hmm. That's that's just incredible. And, and as you're talking, um, Andy, no, about um, all of these different cells that are being activated for various reasons, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the Roe versus Wade um, opinion being overturned by the Dobbs opinion, um, who is really behind this? And, and do we know... Um, how they're being activated, these different cells, and for what purpose? I mean, obviously, this is this is totally left wing, and it's against conservatives and and, and Republican ideology. Uh, but do we know kind of what what the bigger scope of this is? I think we. So, in my research of this, these movements for the last several years, um, written a book about it. Um, part of what makes it extremely hard to dismantle is the fact that they do operate autonomously in the sense that online individuals just have to incite the violence, put out the addresses of the targets of the police departments or the police um, association union buildings, and their comrades will heed the call. And it's a sort of... um, uh, like hor- autonomous organizing that I think makes it very hard for the public to kind of understand how the relationship between incitement to violence on social media and real life violence actually occurs on the left. I mean, they always blame and accuse the right of doing that. But as I've documented in my reporting, you will see actually these people say, these are the targets, and they're just putting it out on, online, and it gets a huge number of retweets. Show up to this place, and it's these anonymous accounts who um, are not, they're not all being led by the same person, um, but they're inspired by the same cause. I think, in a way, you can maybe look at it similarly to how um, when ISIS was carrying out terrorist attacks a number of years ago in the West. They had adherents who um, had never traveled to Syria or Iraq. Let's say we're living in the middle of nowhere in America, but had consumed the propaganda material online and took it on themselves 
to carry out some type of action in support of this ideology. I think that's what's happening here. And um, it's been a failure, in my view, of the federal law enforcement agencies to, uh, to break down these networks that, frankly, started way before George Floyd, but became much more sophisticated and better at, at networking and in the strategies, and are now activating it whenever it's needed. Wow. And and I'm talking with Andy No, who is um, a, a journalist and the editor-at-large for the Post-Millennial. And uh, you mentioned that you've documented this in a lot of uh, research. And for people who are more interested in uh, in that research and in, and in knowing more about these topics, because obviously the mainstream media isn't covering this, or if they are, it's uh, with a shaded bias and not really getting to the truth. So where can people go um, for information on this? And, and obviously, besides the post-millennial, where would you recommend as an independent journalist, um, resources for people to uh, to uncover the truth and good reporting rather than just the mainstream media? Uh, my reporting and ways to support my journalism are are, are listed on my website, andy-ngo.com. Uh, I, I ask that people who, who want to learn more about the, the serious issues in the U.S. involving political violence extremism to, to please check out my website and to support me there, andy-ngo.com. Uh, thanks so much. And um, Andy No, you can also follow him on Twitter at Mr. Andy No. It's N-G-O. And of course, that website is andy-ngo.com. And uh, th- you know, this is an incredible story. And I, I just think that this is such an important topic for people to get the truth and to see what's going on and to see the failures of law enforcement, to see the failures of, of the federal government to really address this. I mean, and it doesn't seem like there's really a rationale unless you are Democrats that don't want uh, law enforcement to be effective and you want to see the breaking down of American society and and you want to characterize this as, you know, a mostly peaceful protest like uh, what they were doing uh, during the whole uh, protests and all of that in, in the aftermath of the George Floyd um, incident that you talked about, Andy. So, you know, all of these topics are so incredibly important. I really appreciate your time this morning. Again, if you want to follow Andy No, it's at Mr. Andy No on Twitter and his website is Andy uh, hyph- or andy-ngo.com. Well, we are already out of time this morning. Thank you so much for listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We are going to be covering all of the topics that are critical. Again, curating the news is what the mainstream media does, but we have topics that we have to talk about from a constitutional, conservative, and of course, Christian perspective. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.